Welcome to the Business Law Podcast, the podcast where we demystify the law. Jonathan Fleischer is your host, and in each episode, we will unravel legal complexities and delve into intriguing topics that directly impact your business, from contract essentials to litigation strategies and everything in between. Join us to explore the fascinating intersection of law and entrepreneurship. So tune in for expert insights and captivating discussions that make the legal side of business not just understandable, but actually interesting. Let's dive in. This podcast is not intended as legal advice. Seek legal counsel for all legal issues. Hello, welcome back to another week of the Business Law Podcast. This is the second week that we'll be discussing liability for businesses um, relating to injuries for consumers. Last week, we discussed the premises liability, which relates to people getting injured either in your business or around your business. This week, we're going to discuss products liability, which means people getting injured from the products that your business sells or gives out for free if you like to do that. Now, products liability can take lots of different forms. So as always, let's start first with the concepts and then we'll get into some practical cases. All right, the basic concept um, of how products liability works, pretty straightforward. If I sell a product, a customer buys it, he gets injured by it. Um, he can now turn around and say, you sold me this product. It was not safe. And since it wasn't safe, I got injured. I now have these terrible injuries that are worth a million dollars, and I'm going to sue you for my injuries. That's what we're talking about when we're discussing products liability. And so the first question is, when am I likely to be liable and when am I likely not to be liable? And of course, what can I do to protect myself? So the most basic case for you to be liable, of course, is similar to premises liability. And that is when you do not take proper safety precautions in the products that you sell. So if you sell circular saws, you don't put proper safety measures on it, right? You sell a circular saw without any kind of guard on top, someone hurts themselves, or you sell a circular saw with a guard that doesn't go all the way around, anything like that, you will be liable. If someone gets injured, they can say, look, this was not properly made. It should have been made with these safety measures. You can and will be sued. And it's not a defense when it comes to products liability to say, well, the person brought, bought my circular saw. They were aware that a circular saw is sharp and dangerous and moves very quickly and can cut off fingers if you're not careful and they knew it didn't have a guard, it's not going to help. When you sell a product, you have to take reasonable safety measures to make sure that the product is safe for use. If you don't, you can and will be sued, um, and you will probably lose. Now, understand that even within safety measures, um, there is, of course, um, a very broad spectrum of uh, limiting the use of the product that you're trying to sell versus the safety measures that you're trying to add to the product. So for instance, if you have a circular saw and you put a guard all the way around, um, you may think, well, I can't put the guard all the way around because then the person using the circular saw won't be able to get, let's say, thicker pieces of wood underneath. And so you make the guard only go three quarters of the way around or two thirds of the way around. Um, and you may still be liable um, if you do that because there may be better ways to set up 
protection for a circular saw. So you can have guards with a spring, you can have uh, stop, you know, some sort of stopping mechanism so that if something comes into contact near the circular saw that doesn't belong there, it can stop. I'm no expert in circular saws. I'm just giving examples off the top of my head just to give you an idea of the broad spectrum of safety measures that can be put into a product. Um, and as a product manufacturer or seller, um, generally speaking, you will be required to take whatever is considered reasonable measures to create proper safety for the product. And even though it may make the product somewhat more expensive to have those safety measures in place, generally speaking, it's still going to be required if you don't want to get hit with a lawsuit and lose the lawsuit when the plaintiff can show that you should have taken better safety measures when you um, either manufactured or sold this product. And the obligation to take these kinds of safety measures uh, can be fairly strict because not only are you obligated to uh, put the safety measures on the product, you are even required to make sure that the kinds of safety measures that you're putting in cannot be easily um, taken off. So let's say, for instance, I put some kind of safety measure on a circular saw, um, but all that's required to get rid of that safety measure and make the circular saw, let's say, easier for certain kinds of uses that people would want it for uh, is just simply removing two screws with a regular screwdriver. And now someone can remove that safety measure and make his circular saw far more functional, but also far more dangerous. That would be considered uh, improper safety measures because it's foreseeable, right? You know that if 100 people buy the circular saw, 20 of them are going to be stupid enough to remove the safety measures in order to make it more functional. And so you actually have to make it more difficult for the safety measures to be removed because it's foreseeable that a high percentage of people who buy the saw are going to want to remove the safety measure. All right. So it may seem kind of counterintuitive and it may seem like, why am I responsible for other people doing stupid things and removing the safety measure that I put on the circular saw? But that's the way it is. Um, again, generally speaking, anything that is a foreseeable use, something that you have to expect people to do is something that you have to look out for and protect against, or else you can be sued and held liable if somebody does that and gets injured by it. So that is the most basic, um, the simplest and most basic kind of product liability, which is again, where you failed to make your product safe. Um, simply, it's what's called a design defect. You, you simply failed to design a product which was safe enough for the consumers buying the product. Now, another way that someone can get injured by a product is, of course, product defects. So I can design a product to be super safe, and it has all these safety measures intact. But if I'm going to sell a thousand products, some of them are going to be defective right? Not everything that comes off the machine or comes off an assembly line is going to be 100% uh, perfect. There are always defective products, right? Out of a thousand products, you know, five will be defective. Um, and sometimes a defective product can cause injury. And so again, you may be thinking, well, what am I supposed to do, right? It's impossible to make every product come out perfect. If I'm going to sell a thousand products, some of them are going to be defective, why would that be my fault? And the answer is this is what's known as strict products liability. Again, it is somewhat counterintuitive to say that you're going to be responsible 
for a defect when there was nothing more that you could have done to control it. Uh, but this falls within, again, what's called strict products liability. It means that you are liable even though there really was nothing that you could have done, even if you implemented proper quality control procedures to make sure that all of your products are non-defective. Again, you cannot catch every defective product. Not every defect is going to crop up until after the product has been used. So you're not going to catch every defect. Nevertheless, you are responsible. Uh, the policy behind strict products liability is essentially to make sure that consumers are protected. The idea being, well, sellers can just take out an insurance policy if someone gets injured the seller will have an insurance policy to cover it. And this way, when people do suffer injuries, they will be protected. Um, this was especially important after mass production came around in the olden days before mass production. Uh, when someone put something together, they could see on each and every product exactly what they were doing, what they were putting into the product. Now that we deal with mass production, like we said, it's impossible to know every single item that's coming off an assembly line or coming out of a machine if it's going to have a defect. And so in order to protect the consumers, uh, this was basically a policy decision uh, to enforce strict products liability. And uh, in this way, consumers are protected. So those are the basic concepts relating to how sellers of products can be liable for injuries caused. Again, it can either be if they did not take proper safety precautions or even if they did, if there was a defect in the product, um, that can, they can still be liable for that. Now, the next question is, who is going to be liable? So let's say, let's start at the beginning. We have the manufacturer who actually builds the product. You can have a distributor who... Uh, acts either as the go-between or actually purchases the product from the manufacturer and then sells it along to uh, the stores who are the retailers. And then the retailer sells it to the consumer, right? So we've got uh, at least three people or three companies along the way, the manufacturer, the distributor, the retailer, and then it goes to the consumer. Nowadays, you could even add to that um, many times you've also got online marketplaces. So for instance, you can have a manufacturer, you can have the distributor, you can have the retailer who sells in an online marketplace. So they can be selling, let's say, through Amazon or eBay, uh, and then you have the consumer who buys. So who from along that chain can be liable when someone gets injured when they buy that product? The answer is any of them and all of them. Each and every person, each and every company along that chain of commerce can be held liable if someone gets injured from a product. And again, this falls within strict products liability. Um, the policy, again, is to ensure that consumers are protected, especially, uh, especially when it comes to this line of commerce. It would be very easy for the seller to say, well, look, I get this item in a box. I have no way of knowing whether or not this item is defective, um, you know, go blame the manufacturer. The manufacturer can be five steps away. It can be difficult to even find the manufacturer. Uh, 
it's again it was a policy decision mostly by lawmakers who decided that we want to protect the consumers and so since the manufacturers the sellers they all have the ability to simply take out an insurance policy to protect them against these kinds of things we would rather make sure that the consumers are protected and whether you agree with the policy or you don't like the policy that's the way it is. And so as a seller, as a manufacturer, as a distributor, and under recent case law, um, even the online marketplaces in many instances can be liable if someone gets injured from a product sold. Now, before this all sounds too harsh and too terrible for everybody, let's move a little bit to the other side of the spectrum and see what kinds of cases would someone not be liable for. So suppose I sell somebody a hammer and they're they're hammering a nail on the wall and they're holding the nail with their finger and instead of hitting the nail they hit their finger and bust their finger open and now they try and sue me and say look you sold me this hammer i was hammering a nail and i hammered my finger i'm going to sue you for all the damage to my finger am i going to be held liable the answer is almost certainly not a hammer is an accepted product um, there is no expectation of making hammers safer than what they are. If you were selling some sort of electric hammer that I don't know how electric hammers work, but you know, similar to the idea that we were talking about earlier with a circular saw where it's more dangerous and the average person may not be, may not have full control over how it works. Yes, you will be required to add extra safety measures. But when we're talking about a simple hammer, um, obviously there is no expectation and there is no policy reason to try and make a standard regular hammer uh, come with any extra safety measures that your average hammer does not have. And so if someone hammers their finger accidentally, it is unlikely that you can be held liable. Now, a creative attorney may be able to look at the hammer and find something wrong with it and say, well, the, uh, the weight of the head was not in proper proportion to the length or the width or whatever it is of the handle. And so therefore it was more difficult than the average hammer to handle. And that's why he hammered his finger. Uh, you may be able to pull off something like that, but again, it's going to be fact specific. Um, but if your hammer is properly weighted, um, the same as every other hammer on the market, it's unlikely that you're going to be liable in such a case. Similarly, um, just another case, uh, similar to the hammer, if someone buys a kitchen knife and they're slicing a carrot and they stick their finger underneath the carrot, which you should never do, and if you have children, tell your children never to stick their finger under the carrots when they're slicing carrots, it is highly unlikely that the seller of the knife is going to be liable for um, this person slicing their finger off because, again, that's a standard normal knife. There is no expectation. There is no policy. There's no reason that a knife should have any extra safety measures when it's just a regular or manual knife that you use your hand to slice carrots with. Uh, people should be aware of how to use a knife in the kitchen. And so basically what this all boils down to um, is that there's uh, two things you got to look out for. Number one, make sure that your products are designed properly. Number two, know that if there is a defect and somebody gets injured, there isn't really anything you can do to protect yourself against that. The best you can do is um, try and keep down the amount of defects you're going to have. And of course, make sure that you have a proper insurance policy. Again, this is the most important thing that a business can do to protect themselves. Now, once we're on this topic, there's a great case that 
uh, I always love to discuss, and that is the famous McDonald's case where the woman spilled coffee on herself, uh, burned herself, sued McDonald's, and got awarded almost $3 million for her troubles. And everybody loves to point at this case and uh, use it as the uh, linchpin or poster boy uh, for how terrible the American legal system is and how everyone can sue for the dumbest things and just make tons of money. And so I would love to discuss this case um, so that we could understand what happened. How did McDonald's get sued and lose so badly for something that seems like someone just taking a hammer and banging their finger with a nail, right? Based on what I said earlier, if someone takes a hammer, bangs their finger with it, that's obviously an expectation. Hammers are meant to bang things. They're not meant to bang your finger. Coffee is meant to be hot. It's meant to drink. It is not meant to pour on yourself. Obviously, be careful with your coffee. Obviously, your coffee is hot. How in the world did McDonald's wind up paying close to $3 million for somebody buying coffee and spilling it on themselves? So let's get into some of the details of the case because it brings out some great points on this topic. So some of the facts that came out at trial was that McDonald's operations manual required coffee to be held between 180 and 190 degrees Fahrenheit, which is extremely hot, far hotter than anybody drinks their coffee at. If you would actually drink coffee at 190 degrees, you would suffer severe burns to your mouth and throat. In fact, these temperatures were so hot that uh, if someone did spill the coffee on themselves at this temperature, the coffee would cause third-degree burns in three to seven seconds. So just for context, uh, if you're wearing a pair of pants uh, and you spill the coffee on your pants, it seeps into the pants, it gets stuck on your skin within three seconds, which is generally, especially if you're sitting down a lot faster than someone could get those pants off, uh, they are going to suffer third-degree burns, which are extremely serious burns and can require skin grafts to uh, to repair those burdens. Not only was the coffee so hot, um, this was not the first time, this was not the second time, this was not the 10th time. In fact, there had been over 700 prior injury cases directly relating to McDonald's uh, coffee that was kept at such a high temperature. Now, you may be wondering why in the world was McDonald's keeping coffee at such high temperatures? If all these people are getting injured, suffering severe injuries, why would McDonald's not do what everyone else does and serve their coffee at uh, more normal coffee temperatures? Now, this was something that was discussed at trial. Um, there were several theories put out. One of the theories which uh, I suspect is the truth, and I'm not going to say what is actually the truth, uh, because I don't know, I wasn't at the trial, and I didn't do a deep enough dive, but one of the theories put forward was that um, in order to extract all of the flavor from the coffee grinds, they needed to hold the coffee at this temperature, and so essentially what McDonald's was doing was saying, look, we're going to have X amount of injury cases per year because we keep the coffee at this temperature, but we're also going to get X amount more flavor out of each batch of coffee. And so what that's going to do is going to gain us X amount of money. So simply put, you put the money gained on one hand, you put the money lost on these lawsuits on the other hand, the money gained is certainly outweighing the money lost. And that's what we're going to do. And when the jury saw that, and when the judge saw that, the judge said, um, I am not going to allow McDonald's to continue to continue making profits 
off of causing this extra risk to people. And so what I'm going to do is I am going to award punitive damages, which means essentially an extra punishment to make sure that McDonald's stops doing what it's doing with its coffee so that uh, it will realize that it is not fiscally responsible and it's not a good idea from a financial standpoint to continue making such dangerously hot coffee. Um, and that was the reason why the judge awarded uh, all this money. So again, it may be uh, it, the outcome may seem a little extreme, but when you look at all the details, you'll see that this wasn't just a simple case of someone taking a hammer and banging their finger. Um, if this had been normally uh, coffee, which was at a normal temperature for hot coffee to be served, which is something more like 160, 170 degrees, as opposed to 190 degrees, um, McDonald's would not have gotten hit with this kind of uh, with this kind of judgment. Um, they probably would have won the case altogether. They probably would not have would not have had to pay anything because that would have been normal expectation for hot coffee that you buy in a store. But because the coffee that they sold was so much hotter, and they knew that they knew that it was a high risk to consumers buying the coffee, that was the reason that McDonald's got hit with such a high fine. So again, the takeaway from all of this is um, in products that you're selling, uh, you are required to make sure that they have uh, basic safety precautions. Um, if you are found to have purposely overlooked safety precautions, you can be hit with um, with punitive damages like McDonald's were. However, generally speaking, if you're taking reasonable precautions, um, even if you do get hit with a lawsuit, Generally speaking, it'll be picked up by your insurance. And the, again, the most important thing you can do for your business to protect against these kinds of liabilities is just to make sure that you have insurance coverage. All right, that is the basics of product liability. And we will see you again next week. Thanks for listening to the Business Law Podcast, a podcast produced and edited by Elemento Productions. That's E-L-I-M-E-N-O productions.com.